Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name, as ever, is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my <laughs> colleague, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Hi, Mark. And we're both sitting here in the company of Dawn James, our special guest today. Welcome, Dawn. Hello, boys. <laughs> the fabulous Dawn James. A few years back, the lovely Kate Mossman was doing a programme about women who wrote for the pop press in the 60s. And she started sending me emails saying, you've got to get Dawn James on board Rock's Back Pages. Because oh, she just fell in love with your writing. And so we eventually did. Oh, and yeah, very nice. Thank you for doing so. Well, and as regular listeners to the podcast will know, is that when I go through the new articles every week, invariably one of yours features because you're just a fantastic writer and so it's a, such a pleasure to have you here oh thank you so much <laughs> not used to praise <laughs> you must be used to some praise dawn we were talking earlier i mean you were saying that your job you were a features writer and yes, so yes. you saw your job as trying to convey the sort of essence of an artist's personality and a singer's yes. personality and yes. that's what you did so well I mean we love the pieces that we've added to Rocks Back Pages there is a real sense of unusual for the time yeah. of you know what what this musician is is really like or what this band yeah. is really like tell us I mean tell us how you became a writer, a features writer, a journalist. Well, I was always a writer from the age of 11. I wrote children's books when right. I was a child. And they were published. Wow. And they were published all over the world. Really? And, yeah, it was really exciting for did me. You have a, did you create a sort of character? No, they famous? were all different. Right. And then sometimes I did work, like for Fleetway Press, I think they were called, mm-hmm. and I did a thing called Baby Zone, which was an actual annual for babies, really young. <laughs> but I suddenly realised it was great because I could maybe influence those children a little bit in what I was writing for them, and that really appealed to me. Yeah. So it was all, you know, good stuff, quite, quite that's, nice. But that's really something, 11 years old. Yes, and that went on, and then I got a contract with British Home Stores yeah. to write some books for them. They were big on books, and then they were translated into Russian, and then I suddenly thought, my goodness, all these Russian children, and, you know, <laughs> I've got to do it right. So it, it was very exciting, and then I just went from that... To, I was then grown up and I thought, oh, this pop business sounds quite interesting. These Beatles sound OK. I'd like to see them. <laughs> and I thought, this is a new thing. Yeah. And it's interesting because I saw the pictures and I read a little bit about them and I thought, this isn't really them, I don't think. I'd like to get in there and give people what they are. Right. You know. And so I thought, I'm going to try. So I thought, Adam Faith lived near me. Mm-hmm. And I thought... Which oh, was where, Dawn? At that point, he lived in Isha, in West End in Isha. I lived on Kingston Hill, but it wasn't very far. And it wasn't London. It wasn't going into <laughs> London and trying to knock on the door of somebody in Chelsea or somewhere. So I thought it would be easier. Anyway, um, I, I got to see Adam Faith. He said I could have an interview. Great. And that was an extraordinary interview. I could tell you about if you wished. It was very unusual behaviour. <laughs> what year was that? I don't know. I mean, early 60s. 60s. Yeah, three, maybe? Yes, I mean, it's all about when the Beatles started. I don't know the mm-hmm. year. And then I sent that in cold to IPC. And one of the magazines, and that was probably Mirabel at the time, came back and said, we'll love it and we'll give you a contract. Wow. And I got a contract. It was as easy as that. That's really. fantastic. Yeah. But it was an unusual interview because... You see, we had a lot to put up with in those days. Girls, and I still don't take any notice of all this mm-hmm. um, political correctness because I'm not used to it. I just deal with it. You deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deal with guys. You're all lovely. Yep. But, you know, <laughs> well, some are yeah, more but, lovely than others. You and me too before me too. Habits. <laughs> strange habits. Anyway, so I got to Adam Faith's house. It was a beautiful house. And he'd done so well to get it, bless him, because he was terribly young. Mm-hmm. And he opened the door... And he said, no, his butler opened the door, said, come in. Right? Let's get this right. So we go into the drawing room, beautiful drawing room, huge long room with a pink handmade silk Chinese carpet. And at the very end of this divine man uh, with blonde hair. I mean, he, I loved him. I loved him. I fancied him like mad. Anyway, so he says, oh, hello. He comes on, sauntered across the carpet, shook my hand and said, I'll show you the house. So I said, oh, thank you. That's lovely. So he took me over the house. We went over and then we got to his bedroom. And he flung me on the bed and leapt on top of me 
and started trying to kiss me. And I really wanted to kiss him. I adored him. But I thought, no, no, this isn't my career, no. So I just said, get off, get off. And he wouldn't. And I thought, oh, dear. And then, thank God, his mum rang. And he answered the phone. <laughs> and so I shouted out, Mrs. Nellums, he's laying on top of me. I'm trying to interview him. And she said, get off that girl. And he did. And we were best friends ever since. <laughs> that is possibly the most amazing story we've had in this podcast. Up to <laughs> yeah, could you tell it again? <laughs> that is Once wasn't that, enough. That, that is extraordinary. So you then sat down and interviewed him. And the had interview a went lovely okay. interview. And he was lovely. And he respected the fact that I didn't give in, I think. Right. You know, because it was very easy I mean, to. But You've already sort of answered the question I was going to ask is that as a young, very attractive woman interviewing men in those days before, you know, everything's changed. Well, we thought everything had changed, and apparently not. Yeah. But you must have put up with a lot of sort of fairly badly behaved blokes at that time. Yes, you just laugh. You just laugh. Yeah. I mean, though, I was no different to any other girl who was working. Right. I was talking to Maureen O'Grady, the lovely Maureen O'Grady from Rave, recently. Uh, and Are you in touch with her? Yes, yes. Because we want to get her on oh, board. Oh, I, I, I hope I've still got her number. Can you do business after the yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you got a number? <laughs> <laughs> What's it worth? Um, no, more in a great deal. I mean, we all went through the same thing, but it was no big deal. It was just normal life. Yeah, you didn't yeah. take any notice. I mean, there were a lot of young women writing for the pop press in those days. That, that rather changed in the early 70s when mm. r rock music became serious. And yes. it was felt that, I mean, a handful, Penny Valentine was one of the few who made the transition. Yeah. Yes. Um, but certainly there were huge numbers of young women writing for the pop press. Well, you must days. have known, like, June Harris, for example. Yes, I, I well, did She went know. to New York very yes, early, she didn't did. she? But Penny Valentine, yes, very early. Yes, dear Penny, I'm so sorry she died so young. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, just in fact, we met her. Yes, um, and she came on board Rock's Back Pages not long before she died. So oh, I'm always and glad she's that lovely. we met her. Yeah, uh, she, she actually, I, I, it was Keith was very funny. He said you know, everyone was in love with Penny Valentine. You know, I'm sure they were because um, her off. Her, she was on disc, Music Echo, yes. and. I think they were in the same building as Melody Maker or something. Yes, uh, I think so. Uh, and everyone, apparently men used to be sort of like hovering around <laughs> <laughs> the male journey. But, I mean, what struck me is what Barney was saying, is about how you really get to the personalities of the people. I read one of your interviews with Eric Clapton, who had just left the Yardbirds and was just joining John Mayle at the time. Right. And you really catch how depressed he yes, was. Yes, he was, yes. You know, but... but to read this in a pop paper. Yes. Well, I think that was important, you yeah. see, because I, you know, when I wrote for Mirabelle, my attitude was I'm writing like Shakespeare. I'm writing English that's going to be as good as Shakespeare if I can, because I will not write down. I don't talk down to people. No. I don't write down to You, you mm. shouldn't. No, 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 no. Because everybody out there, they might look like silly girls of 14 screaming, but, you know, they're going to be important women in yeah. their own right. And also, they... When you talk to anyone, they're, they're super. Yeah. So that's what I did. I tried to not write down ever, not think this is just a pop magazine they'll put up with rubbish. No, no, no. And yeah. the prose is very elegant, isn't it? I mean, I'm looking... So the three pieces that we've picked for the homepage featuring you as the writer this week is the interview you did with Jimi Hendrix in August 1967. And I'll just read the first three sentences. Laughter filled the flat in Upper Barclay Street as Mr Hendrix's road manager, his drummer, and a friend appreciated his wit. Here was something of the proby pageantry, the followers who stand a little behind and laugh and admire. But Jimi Hendrix claims he doesn't need people. I mean, there's an elegance there that you just oh, don't expect you. from the yeah, pop press yeah. in those days. You know, there's a, there's a rhythm, there's a flow, mm. and a lyricism in your writing that was a real revelation well, to us when we really discovered it. Totally. I mean, I have to confess that at the age of nine... I was a fabulous reader rather than yeah. read. How dare you? I know. If he could rewrite the past, if I could, he would. If I, if I could. Maybe it was because Fabulous was cheaper and I could afford it with my pocket money. <laughs> so I used to go to their Christmas parties. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, Keith wrote for both magazines. He wrote as Mike Grant for, for Raven yes. and as Fab Keith. We're talking about Keith Alfred. Keith Alfred, yes. Yeah, yeah, who you knew back uh, then yes, and we had yes. on the, the show. It was a small world, wasn't it? Yes, very small. 
Yeah. Oh, you kept seeing the same people, and you kept seeing the same pop stars, and having to write something different. <laughs> <laughs> I personally miss that in the sense that now we have the internet, and everything's just so diffuse, and it's, it's so many artists. I know, you know, you, yes. you can make a record at home easily. In yeah. those days, to actually get to make a record was very, very a difficult. Huge deal. And it's not a small community anymore. Yeah. The big stars really are out of reach. Mm, you have to yeah, go mm. through so many sort of layers to get well, to them. Whereas it was a small, well, it was a sort it was, of but it was difficult to get to some. People. Well, once sure. the Beatles were, were vast, I suppose, the, then I it mean, was harder. I mean, I didn't ever have any trouble with that because we had a relationship. Exactly. But no, I would have hated, you know, in about 1967 or 68 to be a new journalist trying to get mm. through. Mm. There. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's a short window. Yeah. That, that short. sort of 63 to 67. Yes. Yes. And then after that, things got more and more. And also, diffused. the people themselves, like the Beatles, when I first interviewed them, it was their first tour. And they were so excited, and boys, yeah. they were boys, and they were so excited that people were screaming at them. Yeah. And, and we were at the very top of the building. They had an awful dressing room. And they were second or third on the bill. Second, I think. And they said, oh, I, they didn't even know me. I'd introduced myself. Mm. So that was my first meeting with them. I said, Dawn, Dawn, it's so exciting. They're screaming at us. And I said, are they? Are you sure it's you they're screaming at? And mm-hmm. he went, well, of course. We, look. So John put his head out, screams. I said, <laughs> I bet you if I put my head out, they'll scream. They're screaming at anything, boys. He went, oh, go on, you do it then. Put my head out, they scream. So <laughs> oh, we're not really famous at all. I completely disillusioned. But, you know, yeah. I mean, very I, sweet and naive. I, I didn't highlight it as a piece for this week, but one of the things I'm putting in this week is a very short report by June Harris at the South End Odeon in December 1963. And they're already talking about how, first of all, they can't get meals because hotels in those days didn't serve food after sort of nine no, o'clock. So they'd play a gig, be living on sandwiches, grab there. And also there's sudden awareness that they couldn't walk down the street anymore. Yes. And it's, it's this thing of, you know, maybe one day it'll all return to normal. Yeah, I think they were bewildered. I think for a very little while, because they were very hardy, don't forget, they'd done Hamburg. Yes. They were streetwise. They they were quite tough. Yeah. But I think for a little while it was... I remember being in a car with them. We were going somewhere and they said, oh, come in our car. And it was a chauffeur-driven limousine. Mm -hmm. And the crowds came round us and they started rocking the car. And I honestly thought they were going to turn it over. And I'm claustrophobic anyway. And I said, oh, my God, how do you live? This is hideous. Mm. And they went, we don't like it. You know, because it was... Hideous. Yeah. It was hideous. But talking about their food, they did have quite a bad habit. <laughs> um, they couldn't get food in the hotel, so they used to order it in from a local restaurant before they went on stage. And in those days, Paul wasn't a vegetarian right. vegan. I'm a vegan, but he wasn't at that point. Anyway, they had steak, and they'd order really big steaks and have them in the dressing room, but they'd hardly touch them. Mm. They'd eat, but they're quite you know, wired because they were going on stage and they'd leave them and they'd stub their cigarettes out on them. (laughs) And me, although I came from a very, very luckily affluent background with my parents, my father would have killed us if Mm, we'd done that. It was always the starving children Mm, in Europe and you've got to eat your crust. But also steaks in those days were very expensive. expensive. Yeah, but they could afford you to see just about. But it was quite... Sweet. <laughs> yeah. One of the other pieces is this piece about you know which one is the funniest Beatle that mm. was published in Rave in January '66, and you know it ties in a little bit with what you're saying. The Beatles' sense of humour has stood them in good stead during the past years of their fame. It's helped out when fans demanded too much, the press were unkindly insistent, and even the most unlikely people turned out to be raving Beatle maniacs. And then you go through each Beatle <laughs> and, and specify the type of humour. John has the hard humour, the most intelligent wit, the deepest chuckle. Paul has the face of an angel and the wit of something quite different. He's rather wicked, really. Uh, <laughs> That's true. So it's lovely, lovely it's to get that. Um, I mean, and they were so funny, weren't they? And you said at the beginning, you said something, you know, you knew this was something different. This was a different kind of pop star, a different kind of idol. And there was an intelligence and a wit and a kind of self-deprecation there that 50, stars hadn't really exhibited had they? No I think not I don't know because I really came into it then I don't yeah. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know much about um, them but it was a different different image You knew there was something different yeah. 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 Who, who, who was the nicest person you interviewed? Who do you remember most fondly as a, as a subject of an interview? Of all of them no, no, not the big, just no, of, no, any of, of any artist The nicest oh, Gosh, well Donovan was a bit good 
don't know, really. The ones no. you look forward to. I mean, because some of them you must have interviewed several times, I'm guessing. Oh, all of them, hundreds Lots of times. Of <laughs> I mean, over that, the years, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, I lived with them. I yeah. went on tour with them. I, mm. I did everything. Okay, I'll them. turn it around. Who's the worst? Who, who do you <laughs> That's what he really wants to know. <laughs> um, okay, okay. He doesn't care um, about nice people. Well, well, the worst for me as an interview <laughs> was Joe Brown. Really? Because he was very, he was very, very difficult. And I was a bit gung-ho, really, because it was a job. But, you know, I wasn't going to starve. Mm-hmm. It was OK. I'd, I'd got my career. And so if someone was really awkward, I was quite happy to walk away. And yeah. they all knew that. There were limits to what I put up with. Right. So Joe Brown, I interviewed him. I didn't know him at all. I had never seen him before. And I tried to get him to talk, and mm-hmm. he wouldn't talk. And he was so... Not rude, best him, because I know he might hear this, but he just wouldn't <laughs> give me any answers. So I thought, well, you know, he just said, well, that's a stupid question. Well, I can't answer that. So I tried to explain I was trying to get him on paper as a character, and as an interesting mm-hmm. character. I loved his singing, everything like that. And so I said, OK, so I thought, I'm going to start from the beginning. So I said, what did you have for breakfast? That's a damn stupid question. OK, how tall are you? Well, here you are, it's in the handout, you know. But in the end, he cracked and yeah. he was OK. Yeah. But I think he was very defensive, maybe because I was a girl, I don't know. When did you stop writing about pop? I think probably... 70s, early 70s. Right. Well, set 1970 probably, yeah. and I went to do other stuff. Uh, any particular reason? My life just took another course and it was more convenient. Sure. And I felt I'd done it. Yeah. We'd done what? You'd had pretty kind of decent innings writing. Yeah, it. yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you can't go on forever yeah. writing. Like so we you go into television at that time? No, I didn't go into television till years later. OK. No, years <laughs> I didn't go into television soon enough. Well, it was only about, I don't know. No, I did, but uh, that was in the 90s. Yeah. No, I just should have gone into television long before, but I couldn't. I'm a journalist, you know, I yeah. can't. Yeah. I mean, I still really want to chase ambulances and fire <laughs> I mean, it struck me because, I mean, your style is more reminiscent of, like, later interviews like Lynn Barber at The Observer in many respects. And were you attempted to go into that sort of Sunday paper feature writing? No, it didn't suit what I was doing right. in my life, no. Yeah, yeah. No, it didn't. But, I mean, my favourite writer ever is Maureen Cleave. Yes. I mean, I thought I worshipped her. Her hairstyle, her her writing. Oh, she's terrific. Oh. She, we, she's one of our Gorgeous. writers too. Oh, the just... problem is getting hold of her stuff because no one's archived the Evening Standard. That's so bad. Been... It's a throwaway paper. Yeah, isn't it? Exactly. exactly. It's a problem we yeah. come up against with titles yeah. like yeah. Evening Standard, Time Out, etc. Um, but so, so let's talk about your sister. Yeah, you had, yeah, a, you had a pop star sister, sister. Yeah. who you named Twinkle. You came up with yes. the name. Yes, yes, by accident. Just, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. How do you name true. someone by accident? Well, because Daddy wrote a message when she was born saying Twitcher Ripley has been born, and Twitcher apparently was an expression in the RAF, which Daddy was in at one point, for a little person i think and i thought he'd said twinkle so i just thought oh he's calling her twinkle and that was it (laughs) and people think you know they say lynn i've never in my life called her lynn not once yeah yeah never but people think by saying that they know her well or they used to sure you know like like somebody came up to me once and said oh that twinkle she's amazing you know i said yes she is said, do you know about her sister and i said uh, well, what about her? And they said, oh, poor thing. You know, she's completely mad and she's in an asylum, <laughs> which would have been very sad. And I what? said, no, me. And I said, <laughs> oh, OK, why? And he's, oh, she's so good to her. She has to keep her in luxury. And she... And it was just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so people do come out with the most... Thank yes. God I wasn't. I could have been. Anyone yes. could be, but I wasn't, you know. I mean, her, f- <laughs> her first... She didn't have many hits. She had a fairly sort of... She had sort of cr- a career mm. of two halves, so mm. sort of the early mid-60s. She did. And then another girl in the early 70s. Um, yes. Uh, Terry was her first... That was number three uh, in the biggest chart. hit. And this is all detailed yeah. in a new anthology that you've written this, the yes, liner Yes, I wrote the sleeves for. on for this new CD. Yes, Girl and a Million, the complete recordings. Yes. So how old was she in October 64? She was born in 48... Someone do the math. 16? 
She was 14 when she wrote Terry. Wow. And 15 God. when she recorded it. Pioneering singer-songwriter. Well, yeah. I mean, this, this is the thing that really struck me looking at this, reading the sleeve notes, your fabulous sleeve notes, um, uh, is that... She was an incredible rarity. She was a woman singer writing her own yes, material. Yes, she was. She was, and she was brilliant. Oh, well, I mean, her stuff is so much better than stuff like written by Tommy Scott or whatever. The, 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 oh, I mean, you, you know, I mean, the, 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 the Boy of My Dreams, which is the B-side to Terry, is a pretty terrible piece of... Twaddle, frankly, you know, like a lot of beasts. Well, I wouldn't were like to say days. that because I don't know if Tommy Scott's dead or not. But, <laughs> you know, it doesn't uh, he was matter. A wonderful A and R man or whatever sure, he did. Sure, it's wonderful. Sure. Um, the deal was that if you had an artist, you stuck your tune on the back and you made as much as the that, artist, that, and that was his contract that's with right. the Solomon Agency. So there's nothing we could do about that. Uh, I say, you know, um, "Golden Lights." I think it's the highlight as a song from that that period. I think it's it's a, it, it, it's, it's a nice song. It, it's it's very nice and. You know, I mean, you're talking about this written by a 15-, 16-year-old girl. Mm. It's a very sophisticated bit of songwriting. Yes, it's, she was very good. And then later, when she had the heartbreak in her life, which was mm. losing the, well, who was the love of her life, yeah. but then she had the most wonderful husband who is, you know, forever loving her. But we're talking about Michael um, Hanna, aren't we? Uh, Michael Hanna's yes. the one who died. I mean, the song she wrote about him, it's like poetry. She was a poet. Yeah. born at 17 when I met you Michael Hannah Absolutely. Now, one thing that's very interesting in reading the sleeve notes is that you get this idea that she could take it or leave it. She didn't need the, the career. She such. didn't need the career. She didn't care about anything except animals yes. and, and just her life. I mean, she mm. was passionate mm. later when she had children they were everything to her her family were everything mm -hmm. to her but she was very you know she wasn't a person who wanted to go out there and get money for being a pop star if it happened it happened i mean the michael hannah song is interesting and first of all the title of the song is the man's real name yes it's, which, yes. which is a real a, yeah. a rarity yeah. terribly he died in one of the early dc 10 disasters okay. well she when did she die herself she died four years ago, yeah. May the 21st. Very, very sad. It was yeah. cancer. Uh, it's totally yeah. her own fault. I mean, she smoked. Yeah. And you smoked, so stop. <laughs> she smoked. <laughs> absolutely smoked and smoked and smoked. She drank and drank and drank. Yeah. She never took a drug in her life. Uh -huh. None of us have ever taken mm -hmm. drugs. But, I mean, she... She just had a good time, and we kept saying, "Oh, you won't make old bones." Or oh, who cares about old bones, darling? <laughs> and um, and so I'm afraid it it, it hit her yeah. in the end. But she had a very happy. She had a happy, very a happy marriage. Marriage to a wonderful man who was the milk tray man and the doorman man and the. <laughs> um, I mean, his top model himself, yeah, yeah. highest paid male model in the world. Gosh. He did the other one, Fry's Turkish Delight advert right. was on TV. Yes, and Fry's in it, Turkish he pull, Delight. He, he, he goes down to this beautiful girl on the sand and he doesn't kiss her. He just brushes past her. And the director said to him afterwards, you were meant to kiss her. And he said, Twinkle will kill me. I'm not kissing her. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's a marvellous production. It's a double, double CD. And you're saying there's a vinyl release as well? There's a vinyl release, which is exciting. Then, of course, it's online as well. Yes, yeah, so it's digital. It, 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 well. That's, that's a, right. The label is RPM, which, of course, uh, has released a lot of archival recordings. It's one of the, the key well, to reissue labels. It is, yes. Yeah, Cherry Red have done a beautiful yeah. job on, yeah. on the uh, artwork. And, uh, and you've written these really fabulous sleeve notes. I well, mean, they wanted something from me because I know the yeah. facts. So yeah, exactly. And also you're a writer, so you, right. can, you can yeah, do both. That both helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's very, I mean, it just really takes you back to this extraordinary time where as we were saying earlier, in a small world, you know, Scots, Scots St. James is the Cromwellian, and she was being pursued by the likes of Deck from The Bachelors. and <laughs> Fighting off The Bachelors. P Peter Moon. She didn't fight him off, she quite liked him. Okay. <laughs> Peter knew we adored him. Yeah. And I did his, I did a bit of press at the time, like Keith yes. did. Uh, I don't know how we got away with it because I think it's terrible to be a journalist and a PR person. I think it's awful. Oh, but it happened all the time. It happened then. all the time. It's yes. a conflict of interest. It is a conflict of interest, yeah. but I didn't today. let it be. No. I mean, if I want, if I had to write something bad about them, I would have written it. I'd, 
you know, I'd shoot my own grandmother for my story. <laughs> so, you did, <laughs> so you did interview your sister quite a number of times for Rave under your pen name yes, Jean Marie. Jean Marie. Well, yeah. yes. <laughs> so they wanted the stories. I did that, but no. Yeah. You know. but, but I mean, Keith, Keith was representing Jimi Hendrix and writing about him in the Enemy at the same no, time. No, exactly. Um, exactly. And especially went right up to the seventies. I mean, Richard Williams, yes. for example, signed Roxy Music to Island Records right. and wrote about them approvingly in the Melody Maker. So it's <laughs> not exactly sort no, of. It is. It's, my problem with the, with Twinkle Deck and Peter New mm-hmm. was that when she didn't want to be with Deck anymore, mm-hmm. she wanted to be with Peter Noon. Mm-hmm. I was representing all of them, and Yikes. I had to not let Deck look bad, but get the story for Peter and her. So it's quite difficult. And yeah, Jimmy yeah. Savile, who I know everyone hates, but he was very good to us, mm-hmm. he had was going to run it in his column in either The People or The News of the mm-hmm. World, and... I said to Peter Noon, we've got to stop this for another week so Twinkle can tell Deck. And so he said, I know him really well. And actually, Peter Noon went to see him. And he said, OK, I'll give you another week. And by wow. that time, we'd sorted it all out. Blimey, complicated. Yeah, complicated. <laughs> <laughs> what goes on behind the scenes. Extraordinary stuff. Dawn, do you ever sort of think back to those times and feel amazement that these sort of spotty little boys that you were interviewing in 64 <laughs> are now, you know, they're still playing, they're the biggest stars, and the Stones are about to yes. start touring They'll again. Them, I mean, yes. you know, uh, well, could no. you ever have foreseen a well, time like this? I think we stuck around long enough to foresee it. Mm-hmm. I think there was a, a scene in the Olympia in Paris when the Beatles went there first, and they just going to America, mm-hmm. so they just that yeah. They just hit America. Mm-hmm. 64, uh, early huge. 64, yeah. And we were doing a dress rehearsal at the Olympia, and I looked around and Ray Coleman, editor of Melody yeah. Maker, loads of people, me, quite sort of established, hardened journalists, mm-hmm. really, were screaming and leaping and dancing. And I thought, oh, the boys are never... They've, they've made yeah, it. Yeah. You know, they've actually gone across yeah. that barrier. There's another also very interesting sort of transitional time around late 65 and 66, when I certainly in my job looking through all this stuff now, yes. where there's a sense that, like, pop music was running out of gas to some extent. But actually, things were just starting to get quite serious and interesting. And you did an interview with Steve Marriott, and he's saying, actually, the scene is great right now. He's saying that like, the yes. Beatles are doing some really interesting things. And he is actually kind of correcting this impression that the air is going out of, out of pop. And suddenly these bands are going to start making really substantial records. And oh, that's yes. just really interesting. He was very bright. You see, yeah. he would have known that. He really I, I was a huge fan. I love the small was, faces. Oh, they were wonderful. Yeah. wonderful. Well, and the, the cover of Rave that we're featuring on the homepage is the famous yes. one of Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane. That's right, yeah. plonk. Which I assume, which I assume, was your story. It would have been your story. I, I don't know. I don't, because, know, I don't okay. remember. Yeah, okay. but, it's a because, long time ago. Because, <laughs> yeah. because you know, you had this handful of journalists interviewing a handful of bands, and they sort of rotate. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's great stuff. It's such a treat to have you here. Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, I think we'll we'll move over into the other stuff that's new on Rock's back page or featured on the homepage this week. We always say, please stick around and chip in with anything okay. that sort of inspires you. Anything you might have to. Say about any of the artists that we talk about, um, <laughs> but essentially the podcast is, you know, is we're telling people what's what's new, and so the featured artist, the the, the free articles on the homepage are essentially a tribute to the late Rocky Erickson, who I'm sure you wouldn't have interviewed, <laughs> on, but he had a very influential band called the Thirteenth Floor Elevators from Austin, Texas. And um, he passed away earlier this week. Yeah, oh, uh, and uh, we're fans here at Rock's Back Pages because yes. they were yeah. they were kind of the original psychedelic punks. Well, well they, I mean, right? interesting is you know that San Francisco is a place most associated yeah. with the public mind with psychedelia, but Texas had absolutely concurrently its own sort of small psychedelic scene, 13th yeah. floor elevators, yeah. the well, moving sidewalks. Yeah. Um, who well, actually, they were, they were from Houston. That was Billy Gibbons' yeah, band, yeah. wasn't it? But it was Texas. But it was Texas. It was Texas. Um, and indeed, Janis Joplin started off in Texas mm. before she moved to San Francisco and at one point could have joined the 13th floor elevators. So 
the text and psychedelic scene is very specific. It sounds very different from West Coast psychedelia. Mm. And curiously, in certain sort of areas of sort of fandom now, is much more highly regarded than this. Well, their first album, 1966, was called Psychedelic Sound. Yeah. And <laughs> they proved to be hugely influential on everyone from, like, television to Primal Scream. Everyone's yeah. covered the famous songs, like, You're Gonna Miss Me. Yeah. And they were, they were great. They were like a sort of garage band that had dropped a huge amount of acid. Yeah. And their instrumentation was, was bizarre. So one of the pieces... Metal Mike Saunders writes about their their sound and and, and mentions how. But in fact, it's Greg Shaw in a review of Nugget uh, talks about their weird mixture of Buddy Holly, Rolling Stones, falsetto screams, and jug blown popping sound. It's a very distinctive sound, isn't it, the 13th Corolla? Didn't he have sort of mental health problems later in life? I seem to... I think he had mental health problems from the moment he started dropping acid and DMT. (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, there's this, you know, so the pieces about them, just mention all these extraordinary stories and legends of of Rocky's life that apparently he had a hole drilled into his head. I mean, he certainly suffered major mental health issues he was he was committed to austin state hospital and then he was also committed to the hospital for the criminally insane That's in right. rusk texas oh, he was why? there for three and years was he criminally insane i don't know criminally but i don't think criminally insane but he that was he was um pretty unhinged i mean i do there's no doubt that acid and so forth did did some real damage to his to his well, mental well you faculties. know that, that may be true he may have been that anyway that's that is the thing i i, I think mentally I, fragile anyway I, I, I think that's the nature of the way drugs can have the, the, the what they'll do is bring out the latent problems which are already pre-existing mm. and not necessarily causing them in the first place no but, but anyway it's, it's a very interesting man yeah um, so, and so i mentioned the nuggets composition that's certainly where i first would have heard uh, the mighty you're gonna miss me by the 13th floor elevators which actually got to number 55 um on the US charts, which is not, it doesn't sound very high, but well, for, a, for, for a sort of yeah. um, obscure ban on an independent label yeah. in Texas, it was, it was quite, and it was one of the, the great tracks on Nuggets. Now, Nuggets came out in 1972, and it was this double album compilation put together by Lenny Kay yeah, of right. all these sort of obscure bands that had somehow got lost yep. in the days of kind of acid rock yep. and of course Lenny's argument and Greg Shaw's argument in reviewing it for Rolling Stone was actually this was much more vital, yeah. thrilling, exciting music than say I don't know, you know, name your band of choice Pink, Pink Floyd, Floyd. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I certainly agree <laughs> yeah. with that and that album was massively influential on punk rock. It was extraordinary influential. And Greg uses, I mean, the title of his piece, and this is 1973, Punk Rock, The Arrogant Underbelly of 60s Pop. Yeah. And he mentions this phrase, punk rock, Mm. right through. So he identified the 13th floor elevators, the seeds, the standells, etc. All the Pacific Northwest scene, which ties in with talking about Jimi Hendrix. So Jimi Hendrix wrote a song, Axis Bold's Love, called Spanish Castle Magic. And the Spanish Castle was a club between Seattle and Tacoma, Washington. Yes, in Washington yeah. State, uh, yeah. Which was the place where all these garage bands play. And the thing about Jimi Hendrix, he was black, he was deeply imbued in black music, but he loved that stuff too. Sure. And that's where he'd go as a teenager to see bands. Yeah, he saw the Sonics uh, and the Wailers And Mark Lindsay, yeah. Mark Lindsay from Paul Revere and, Paul the Revere and Raiders. Raiders reports, we got, got it on the site, he says that the, 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 the Spanish Castle is the most terrifying place to play. The crowds were more wild. Yeah. You, you and know. he means wild. Wild, sure. he means yeah. really wild. Yes, and the, yes. the fights in the parking yes. lot, bottles thrown yes. at the stage. I mean, it was just madness. And, the, and that's all part of this, this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the most... Re- so just to mention, because we have to pay tribute to the, the late, great Tom Hibbert, Rocky was kind of Tom's hero. Oh, really? Yeah, and he that. had met him when um, Rocky was briefly brought out of the wilderness in 1980. He'd, he'd interviewed him at... Uh, when he signed of, two, of all record labels, Columbia, got some bizarre deal in 
1980. And then 15 years later, and I remember this because I was working at Mojo, so 1995, Mark Ellen sent Tom Hibbert to Austin to track down, to unearth the by now seriously sort of unhinged What a wonderful uh, job. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And it, and it's just, a, it's such a wonderful piece, you know. So, so, you know, so Tom unearths Rocky living in absolute squalor oh. with sort of 17 televisions all going at the same time. His hair all matted and, and his teeth worn down to fangs of minimalism. Oh, how um, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and just saying really, really loopy things. But it's still great, and Tom still loves him. And but it's great because it's fact. It's, 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 it's great yeah. reportage. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like you were sent there, Dawn. It's, it's the, it's the <laughs> nine, mid-90s equivalent of, of Dawn actually dropping in on someone. And Anyway, so how Rocky lasted as long as he did, we don't really um, know, that, do we? That, that's a mystery. That's, that's the mystery. The that's true a mystery. puzzle. But, I mean, we love... Rocky Erickson, and he will be missed, and he was incredibly influential. I think at this point, we will turn our attention to the week's audio interview. Wow. Well, the week's audio interview is an hour and 45 minutes, and that's after editing, of Adam Sweeting on the tour bus in America with Neil Young from August 1985. And it's, it's just pretty astonishing stuff, I think. You agree, Barney? It, it, it is. We're, we're running this because Neil is just releasing a live album from 1973 uh, called Tuscaloosa, which is like a close cousin to Time Fades Away, which is a live album that Neil himself disowned. I rather love it. But this is the same tour, but with Kenny Butchie playing drums. Right, right. So it's slightly more faithful to the, the Stray Gators sound sure, that, that, sure. that Neil was doing at that time. And I'm really looking yeah. forward to hearing it. I, the, the, this interview takes place, he's on, actually currently on tour and as a sort of triple or more bill with Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. It was Neil's country, his Old Ways album, which is pretty much a strict. Not exactly a straight country album, but it's a distinct it country. It was as close to yeah. being a uh, traditional country uh, album it, as Neil ever made. It's also the time when, uh, and I think because of his exposure to these country musicians, he's become very aware of the problems in rural America, and he talks about what became shortly after Farm Aid, and his approval of Ronald Reagan, which may shock some of the listeners, and his approval of Ronald Reagan's Star Wars anti defence missile defence so system. So interesting. Mm. It? it really is. And he sort of waxes philosophically generally. I mean, he talks about... Well, in fact, we'll play the clip now. He talks about how rock and roll has sort of left him, passed him by now, that rock and roll is a young person's game. Mm. And that, that, in a way, he feels most comfortable in the milieu of country music and country musicians. Mm. Now, that was to change. He was to return. I mean, he mm. basically, one of the great grunge albums, Ragged Glory in 1990, mm. he certainly didn't abandon rock and roll, but that was where he was at when this interview took place. In some ways, rock and roll has left me down. It really doesn't leave you a way to grow old gracefully and continue to work. So, why do you think that is? How is that? I wonder, I wonder what Mick Jagger thinks about that. Yeah. I don't know why, but but I think that's you know something about it that's just it's not as conducive. If you're gonna rock, you better burn out. Because that's the way they want you to it's, They want to see you right on the edge where you're glowing. Right on the edge, living edge. Which is where young people are. They're discovering themselves. Rock and roll is young people's music. You know, and I think that's a reality. And uh, I still love rock and roll, and I love to play the songs that I play in my set that are sort of rock and roll. But I, uh, I don't see a future for me. I think that's really interesting. We're going to play a clip at the end of the show, which is also fascinating, where he's asked about his biggest 
single hit Heart of Gold. And what was his attitude towards stardom, which he was on the verge of proper stardom at that moment. And he talks about how he didn't, he felt deeply uncomfortable about it and decided to kind of sabotage himself by making Tonight's the Night. Yeah. And how he presented Tonight's the Night to the record label. And they were horrified. He was at this meeting. He saw their faces fall. Because it's just, it's, I love Tonight's the Night, mm. but it's a really rough rough old rock and roll for real kind of hardcore Neil Young fans it probably is his greatest album I think you know and the polar opposite to old ways did you were you aware of Neil Young in the in the 60s early 70s at all did you ever ever write about any of those American groups probably not we didn't really touch the American Mm. groups unless they came over yeah yeah you know like when the monkeys Started, if you can call them a proper group, (laughs) absolutely, very sweet. But no, no, I got a phone call from their PR in America saying, "You've got to help us. You've got to do loads on them." Yes, they we met them and they made a big fuss. They sort of arrived on the English scene, Mm. like here we are, very American, really, and nobody took any notice. I mean, yeah, they were fine, but they weren't going to topple our stones around. (laughs) No, no. Well, it's funny that Neil mentions Mick Jagger in that in that quote there, Mm. Um, but I don't think the Buffalo Springfield ever came over here. I mean, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young obviously played here, but you you wouldn't have been writing about those sorts well, of... Well, at that point, bands. they weren't commercial anyway, no. were they, for no, they what, uh, what we were doing? I mean, effectively, you'd effectively stop writing about rock and roll yeah. when all these bands really appeared. I mean, Woodstock was 69, yeah. Crosby, Nash and Young were on Woodstock. Yeah, just, just yeah. Still Cusp doing of, it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. But anyway, you didn't write yeah. about, like, prog rock bands, did you? No. You write about <laughs> Yes or no. Emerson, Lake and Palmer. You oh, were spared. I loved spared. Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Oh, <laughs> I went oh, this I is this. with them to the south of France. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the say. scoop for the podcast. <laughs> this is the scoop. He's Dawn James prog fan. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Emerson, oh, Lake dear. and Palmer. That's the Paul quote. Oh, that's <laughs> very the, funny. The, that's I wouldn't have associated you with ELP. No. <laughs> that's I mean, actually, that's another question is that that when the sort of the hippie stuff kicked off did it make any sense to you 67 around there and suddenly like the drugs the underground scene the underground press yeah it made sense yeah 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 yeah, absolutely i mean i thought it was very exciting to be honest mm. well that's because some people just couldn't it's interesting we had one of our writers ann moses american who wrote who was the editor of tiger beat and she sort of had a choice to follow that or stay a pop... A or stay pop, with the monkeys. Stay with the monkeys. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, she hung out for a week with the Jefferson Airplane in their mansion in Haight-Ashbury. Yeah, and she it. thoroughly enjoyed it and was very interested. Yeah. But she opted for the monkeys and yes, never really yes. got that sort of thing. Yes, yes, yeah. She put yeah. all her, egg, her eggs in the monkeys' In the monkeys' <laughs> yeah. her, The picture we got on the side of her is on the handlebars of Davy Jones's chopper bicycle. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, Back but, to Neil, though. I mean, yeah. I, I listened to the... I mean, I had to carve out a fair amount of time last night to listen to this interview. I mean, as you said, an, an hour and 45 minutes. It's one of the longest we have on Rock's Back yeah, Pages. Yeah. And, I mean, I just think it's amazing yeah. I mean it really is one of the best audio interviews that, that I think we have on the site now I mean he's so impressive he's so articulate yeah. I was saying to you earlier I don't think I can't think of many stars of that statue who is just so absolutely certain about their beliefs and what they yes. think about yes. stuff you know you ask Neil a question you don't you get no real self-doubt from him and I don't say that in a in a bad no. way there's something very very mm. authoritative confident about the man and he's just always interesting yeah. on everything and, and, really and, isn't he and very hard headed and everything I mean there's a yes. fascinating bit he, sort of where he talks about David Crosby who at that time was in the depth of his drug addiction yes it's not 85 and yeah. he's basically yeah. saying they've asked me to come back to do another Crosby Stills Nash and Young tour he said I'm not doing it until Crosby's straight until he's mm. off the drugs I'm not going to go on stage with a man who looks a mess mm. you know uh, uh, and his He's, well, good luck to him uh, to say that. And he's absolutely right. Yeah, you know, absolutely. He's adamant about it. But he's brutally truthful about it. He says, yeah. you know, I can say this, you can print it more or less. He doesn't actually say you can print it, but you know, I, say, I can say it's because everyone knows. 
Well, he was the ultimate alpha male in that setup, you know. I think Stills maybe was was the original alpha male in that group, but but Neil very quickly took control and started calling the shots. And you hear that in just the uncompromising stance he takes. Either David stops freebasing, you know, or we get back together and I will play with them again, but I'm not doing it until then. You know, it's very, very hard line. He doesn't suffer fool's glad. He's very uncompromising. And you talk about tonight's the night. I mean, I do think one of the most extraordinary things about Neil is just how many left turns he's taken, how many changes of direction. Yeah. I mean, he he's never stopped challenging himself. Yeah. And he talks he talks about all sorts of things yeah, yeah, in this. I, I mean, know. he talks about windsurfing, yeah, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> uh, he talks about meeting Charles, Charlie Manson. Charles, Charles Manson, Manson he talks oh, about. Yeah, and he met him a few times. Yes. Um, right. uh, you know, it's that Los Angeles, that tight scene. Yeah, and Charles yeah. Manson was a wannabe musician. Yeah, I didn't and, know that. Yes, and he, uh, he actually recorded as an album. There is a Charles Manson album you can mm. still get. And and he talks about his admiration for Manson's songwriting mm. whilst being deeply spooked by the man. Mm. But he said this guy would never play the, the song twice the mm. same way. Mm. He, he, would, he could write a song on the spot. Yeah. You know, actually, Manson had some talent. Very well, talented. I mean, that's, again, you know, Neil will say things that... You know, he knows they're not going to yep. go down very well. So he will he will say approving things about Manson as a musician, and he'll say approving things about Ronald Reagan at a time when you know <laughs> he would have known full well that this wasn't going but to was play well. He was being true with to himself. Yes, and he was being honest. I mean, I absolutely. I, you, your faces when I said Jimmy Savile had been very good to oh. us. Not a fashionable thing to say, no. but the facts. It no, doesn't mean I liked him or what he did. Absolutely. And I think this. I think Neil's quite right in what he was saying, well, really. Well, I, 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 th- I think that this is this is really important because I think people tend to tailor what they say to what they think people, people want, want to hear. hear. Yeah. yeah, and that's no good. And that's really no good. Oh, it's no. boring. You, you know. He's never followed the crowd. No. He's always been a leader neil yeah. and i think that goes right through the kind of punk and grunge eras you know he's still cool yeah. you know even if you know whatever you think of the, the music he's made and he's also an extraordinary you know, archivist of his own oeuvre isn't he i mean yeah. just, just, just these constant things that are coming out of his archives i mean this i think this tuscaloosa album will be brilliant for anyone who loves songs like don't be denied and so forth i shall certainly be lapping it anyway for, you know even if you're not a neil young yeah. fan i worth hearing i, I absolutely yeah. think it's worth hearing if you are a neil young fan it's essential listening this mm. so what's next Yeah, so what's going to go into the library this week? And funnily enough, we're starting with an article by a certain Dawn James. Perish the fool. Uh, uh, oh, no. An interview there at Burden with the Animals and Rave 1965. And he comes over as a very sort of strong-minded person. I get the feeling you didn't adore him, but... but Gosh, didn't I? I but, don't know. But, but, but you report what he said, very much oh, what you're fair saying. Fair enough, that's what you uh, have to uh, do. And he says, I won't be ordered to appear dressed and shaved at 11 or 12 or 5. My free time is my own. And in a sense, he, he keeps reiterating this point that he's not just a puppet of the music industry. Uh, and it's a very interesting, very interesting piece. Do you remember... I, I mean, I knew him very yeah. well. I don't particularly remember that piece, no. but I, it is what I would expect him yeah. to say. He was his own man. Yeah. But he also spent a lot of time in my family home because he? he was a friend of Twinkle's. And oh, he oh. and Rod Stewart used to turn up with her at five in the morning, having been clubbing all night. <laughs> and then they'd have breakfast with the family. <laughs> and he used to play the grand piano. We had a grand piano in the yeah. drawing room and Eric playing with... Heaven. Oh, fantastic. Oh, gosh, that's, that's great. What a lovely idea of them showing up at five in the I morning. Know. Was this the family? Your, so your parents were yeah, woken parents at five in the morning, were they? Well, I expect were they she very tolerant. Were they tolerant? Quietly. It was a huge house. They probably yes. didn't even mm. know, you know. Fantastic. But, yeah. but they did know they were at breakfast. They'd have breakfast. <laughs> Second piece is Peter Jones interviewing Nancy Sinatra from Record Mirror in 1966. It's a curious one because, in a way, this is an example of someone actually sort of saying what she thinks people need to know. So she says, one thing's for sure, what I'd rather be is a wife and a mother of about six kids. Of course, I'm on my own now, but I have to pay my own way. And 
a bit of me thinks, really? And she says, uh, we want to try to make our own success. It's too easy to rely on somebody else like my father. Did you have any dealings with Nancy Sinatra? I have never written about her. I mm. did meet her once yeah. at a dinner. And actually, I feel it's quite difficult. You know, we, we laugh about that. But, you know, imagine what it's like trying to do something in the field your father mm, yeah. is in when no one's ever going to top him ever and everyone knows you've got family money but having family money doesn't mean no. I mean I we had family money but I had to earn my living yeah. and yeah. still do yeah. so you know yeah. it's a bit sad really <laughs> that c- people c- judge like that curiously particularly the records she made with Lee Hazelwood have now got a lot of cachets that Nancy mm. Sinatra has now taken rather more seriously today. Good, I'm uh, glad. Uh, 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 as an artist than she was at the yeah, time. Well. And I think Boots was a fantastic single. I loved show. it. <laughs> loved it. <laughs> it was absolutely great. These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Live review of the really dreadful Mungo Jerry. From the, of course, it's a John Mendelssohn article. Again, once a week, I'll find the John Mendelssohn article because he was so withering in his contempt for nearly everyone he reviewed. For the Los Angeles Times in October 70, it says, Mungo Jerry, currently playing mostly to empty tables at the Whiskey, mm-hmm. began its meteoric rise to prominence this summer when it was inserted at the last minute into the programme of a British pop festival. It went over sensationally, presumably because by the time it went on, the audience had leaden heaviness and numbing progressivism coming out of its ears. (laughs) Removed from that ideal context, the group impresses, if that's the appropriate word, as perfectly dreadful. There probably isn't a pizza parlour pickup band playing who couldn't blow Mungo Jerry off the stage. So, John Mendelssohn, we adore John Mendelssohn, he was a guest on this podcast recently, and who was it who said, John Landau asked him, do you actually like rock and roll, John? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Enemy 1971, Roy Carr interviewing James Brown, where it's just Classic James Brown. Sex is a part of a man's life. You have to be able to exercise your manhood. It's a oh. man's world. Oh, In the context of what's been happening recently, this is quite good. I want to have soul music everywhere so that the Queen or the President will take their shoes off and get it down. Oh, that's lovely. I'm oh, sure I, they would. I'm in much better physical shape than either Clay or Frazier. They're both very good friends of mine and they themselves told me that. Interesting that he calls... Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, because Muhammad Ali, some years before this, had got he regarded his slave name and had adopted the name Muhammad Ali. But James Brown, who claims to be a friend of his, is having none of that. I can tell you a story about Cassius Clay. Oh yes, we were in a car with him, and me and another journalist don't know who the other journalist was. And I mean, he's an adorable man, adorable. And he said, "Hey, stop the car now! I think we're going round Leicester Square." That girl over there, I want her in this car. And he made the chauffeur get out and ask her to come in the car, and she came in the car. Bloody hell. Yes. I mean, amazing. You liked him. You, you liked my I didn't know him well at all. I no. thought he was gorgeous. Yes. yes. Mm. But yeah. he was like a big teddy bear. I didn't know him. I hadn't interviewed him. I hadn't analysed him. But, you know, he seemed nice. Oh, I, I, you know, I think he's, he's a sort of hero to our yeah, generation, yeah, isn't definitely. he? You know, David Hepworth being rude about the Runaway's debut album, The Enemy, in 76. The sound lies somewhere between the strident lurch of Chin and Chapman's productions for Susie Quattro and the highly coloured theatrical streams of Kiss. Mm. Each track plods ineluctably on the heels of the last, leaving the listeners begging for some respite from the muddy thump of the drummer and the bad-tempered caterwauling of lead singer Sherry Curry, mm. 16. From December 77, a fascinating overview of West Coast punk. Well, it sort but, of ties in to some degree with well, the Runaways. The Runaways are mentioned in the article are itself, they, right, yes. Yeah. But from Jack Basher, who's a nom de plume of... Is it Howie Klein? Howie Klein. Yes. For, for Cream. For Cream magazine. And it's, it's the earliest mentions we have in our, our library of bands like the Dills and the Germs. The Germs, they smear themselves with peanut butter, throw food at the audience and are big <laughs> on hairdos. Vocalist Bobby Pin, who later changed his name to Derby Crash, or Derby Crash, a rich kid has more safety pins than anybody else in the world. And talking about the Dills, he says, the Dills are not only the oldest punk rockers still punk in South of the Nuns, they're also the most Id- ideologically pure. Urine-stained communists, according to noted scene-maker and industry hustler Kim Fowler. Well, 
what a wonderful meet... expression. Yes. Did you meet Kim Fowley? No. Because he was hanging yeah. around with PJ Proby in London in 66. Probably at the Scotch with St. Oh, James's. I probably yeah. did. A very him. tall American, if you remember. Six, very, very, very tall oh, American. Yes. I spent a lot of time in PJ Proby's house in Chelsea. So oh, yeah. well, then you would have. You would have. <laughs> <laughs> Kim. Yeah. But that's a, an incredibly important scene, yeah. of course. You know, you, you, you I've written a fair amount of it about West Coast punk and some of those bands. Yeah. Um, you saw uh, quite a few of them. I saw some of them. I saw them a little later. I saw you know, the more more kind of Black Flag era. Yeah. But I, 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 it's, it was great to see that piece yeah. appearing in the library, just because it's a really comprehensive report on a scene that seemed quite improbable, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, the idea for snot-nosed punks in sort of London or New York that there could be legitimate punk activity in, Los in Angeles. the California sunshine. <laughs> know. You know, it seemed anathema. You know, LA at that point just represented everything that punk rock was fighting the, the against. The Eagles, yeah. And yet I think some of the, the greatest punk bands came out of California and probably Southern California yeah. in particular, you know. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great overview, yeah. very funny, um, doesn't take it terribly seriously, sure. but it's, it's great. July 80, Charles Shalmara's review of Joy Division's Closer, which was released after Ian Curtis's death. Mm. And it's a very long review, and he talks about the problems of reviewing a record after an event like that, and whether you start reading the death into the record too much. Mm. But he, he ends his last paragraph, his greatest, Closer is a magnificent memorial for Joy Division as much as Ian Curtis, as any post-Presley popular musician could have. In the most strict and literal sense of the term, it's a matter of life and death. Aren't you glad to live in the kinds of times that make people produce music like this? Mm. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's an important review to have on the site. And, and I could, you can read him struggling to write it in the context of... of the I remember there. the review and it came out. I remember buying the album mm. straight away. I mean, not just on the basis of the record, but I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about Joy Division. Too much. And <laughs> probably too much. I think it's just, a, I yeah. think it's an extraordinary record and, and full of, yeah, full of intimations yeah. of death, frankly. You yeah. know, it is a memorial. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a yeah. beautiful and savage record, really. And moving from that to the ridiculous, which is the interview with... Imaginations Lee John by Dave Rimmer for <laughs> Smash Hits in 83. And uh, Lee John says, I can sit back now and enjoy all my sequins and all my pearls and all my lame and all my trimmings because I've been through the mill. Uh, Lee, Lee is absolutely hilarious. Do you know Imagination? Do you have any knowledge? Do you remember three, yeah. three black guys who uh, with, came out of the sort of Brit soul scene? In, but but in Lee was so yeah. outrageously so camp. camp. It's just, just I interviewed him once at Pineapple Dance Studios and he oh, was... Yeah. Absolutely outrageous. But they did make <laughs> two or three rather yeah. good records. Jasper uh, was playing Just an Illusion. It's a great record. It still sounded yeah. rather good. Curiously, again, the sort of the new disco crowd have rather adopted some of the joy of the imagination. As in, said Joy Division. <laughs> Possibly not. Uh, yeah. uh, imagination. <laughs> Stranger like, things have happened. Skipping on, Stephen Dalton wrote a piece for the New Music Express in 93 about London. It's like a psychogeography of London pop mm. music, and he goes back to the Stones. The 60s. Uh, he yeah. goes back right back to the 60s mm. and the Kinks. Ray Davis is a kind of documenter oh, yeah. of a certain sort of London. When you think of Waterloo Sunset, yeah, exactly, obviously, there's so yeah. many great London-focused yeah. songs of that era. Yeah. But he talks about often the most important London musicians were actually the suburban London musicians. Yes, mm. like the Stones. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Dartford. And, and uh, the Who. Um, absolutely. Well, Who was Shepherd's Bush, which is a bit mm. more, oh, well, a bit yeah. more central. in the city. Uh, were they all? I thought But the Surrey Delta, of course, you know, as many have pointed out, you know, where, the, where you were from, all these mm. extraordinary blues musicians came out mm. of that. That's right. You know, Clarkson Beck and Jimmy Page all came out of that sort of Isha, Epsom, Ripley yes, area. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they did. See, we have some talent down there. Yeah, it, well, you, you could indeed. The sorry, Delta. Um, <laughs> but but it's, it's it's and it takes it right through to Britpop and so on and so forth. And it's kind of you know, mm. and it, but it's very interesting. I mean, you know, mm. about a city and about the relationship musicians have with the city, both as a liberating experience and also something which is quite crushing and so on and so forth. So mm. it's really worth reading. And the last thing I really want to talk about is a 1999 interview with the Flaming Lips, Wayne Coyne, who are a band who's sort of passed me by, but you're a Huge fan. Well, I interviewed Wayne mm -hmm. with the Chemical Brothers when they when they collaborated on something. But I had reviewed 
the soft bulletin, which many would say is their great masterpiece, that had come out shortly before this interview. Yeah. And we are celebrating the the anniversary of that now, and they're about to rele- release a new album. I think Flaming Lips are one of the most extraordinary groups to come yeah. out of America. He comes. To, I, I, I featured this because actually I, I kind of liked him reading the interview and, and found him interesting. He says, "I feel an obligation to myself to pursue new ideas. I want to make a contribution. I don't want to just leave rock music the way I found it." Yeah, and, and he's he says, done that. And he says, "When I approach music, it's like, what is this beast? How can I beat it? I want to be <laughs> in this insane thing I have to struggle with." Um, yeah. you, you know, made me want to listen to them actually. You yeah, know, re- reading the piece. Yes, it would make me want to listen. That's yeah. marvelous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just I remember hearing the soft bullets in the first time, and thinking, "Wow!" You know, I was vaguely aware. I had listened to earlier stuff, but this was something new. I mean, it was it was this kind of cosmic masterpiece. The sound of it is extraordinary. It was made under difficult conditions. It's it's a really mind blowing record. Mm-hmm. Actually, mm-hmm. it's like. It's got psychedelic components, but it's really epic and emotional. And, you know, they became very celebrated, certainly here in the UK at that time. And then he, be- sure. he became a fixture at festivals and he- he'd-, he'd get into this giant bubble, which was then passed over the Amazing. arms and hands of the crowd. <laughs> and this bubble would just roll around. And he'd be singing. People. And he'd be singing oh, in- inside the bubble. And they were, if yeah, been, I mean, it was very theatrical. Yeah. If it'd been a lot me, of stuff I'd have just thrown up. I wouldn't be able to sing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd have died of claustrophobia. <laughs> yeah. He's a really interesting guy. He's a great interview, and yeah, it's uh, good. It's good. Yeah. How, how about yeah. you? Have you found anything? Well, actually, I was going. I was really just noting some of the things <coughs> that you've already mentioned. Oh. Great minds think alike. Of course, we have to mention en passant our favourite sort of hard rock guitar twiddler, Ngui Malmsteen. <laughs> I was, was so. <laughs> I, I, I was so pleased to get this. He is frankly the most absurd figure in metal mm. who takes himself so seriously mm. and it's a live show in in sydney I mean, 1990, yes. His name has just become a sort of byword for, for sort of... Idiocy. Pomp rock, exhibitionism, <laughs> pomp rock, yeah. writ large, there, hasn't there it? is this fantastic interview in Musician where it's a joint interview with him and John McLaughlin, whose idea it was to put these two guys together. They're both extraordinarily technically adept guitarists and so on and so forth. But it rapidly becomes apparent that Yingui takes himself fantastically seriously and that John McLaughlin can't take Yingui seriously at all and it's, 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 it's great you can almost see the wry smile on John McLaughlin's face as yeah. Yingui is kind of bullshitting on you know, yeah, but yeah exactly Well, so I thought I would just give that yeah, a, yeah. a little nod of the head. Yeah. And yeah, there's tons of great stuff for subscribers on Rock's Back Pages this week. But the main event for us today has been having you here <laughs> in our you. very high-tech studio no. in Hammersmith. Don't tell anyone what it's really like. As I said, the listeners of the podcast have heard me raving about yeah. your writing since the, since we oh, started. So raving kind. about the Queen of Thank Rave. Like the Queen of Rave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's just such a huge pleasure to have oh, got you along today. You. So lovely to meet you both because you're both raving mad but so clever. <laughs> <laughs> finally, finally, some recognition. Finally. Raving mad but clever. Um, so, so that'll do. We're going to go out with uh, another clip of Neil Young where he talks about that transition from Heart of Gold through to tonight's the night. It's great stuff. What fun it's been today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for coming in, Dawn. It's been an honour for us to have you here. Come and see us again sometime. Brilliant. Thank you. We'll say goodbye then. Yep. Bye. Till next week. Bye. Heart of Gold was like a very big hit, wasn't it? Probably my biggest single. Sure, yeah. Did that make a particular change in, in your sort of attitude to stardom and things? Well, I guess at that point I had attained a lot of fame and everything that you dream about when you're a teenager. Mm. I was still only 23 or 24. I realized that I had a long way to go and this wasn't going to be the most satisfying thing, just sitting around basking in the glory of having a hit record. Really very shallow experience. It's actually a very empty experience. It's nothing concrete except ego gratification, which is an extremely unnerving kind of feeling. 
So I think, I think subconsciously I set out to destroy that, rip it down before it surrounded me. It could feel a wall building around me. The record company wanted me to do another one of those. So I did Tonight's the Night. <laughs> you know. Was there a kind of scene where you unveiled it to them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty rocky. So I would have described that as a rocky day. So you went in and played it to them? Yeah. And sat there while they listened? Yeah. <laughs> well, they cringed. <laughs> they couldn't believe how sloppy and rough it was. They couldn't believe that I really wanted to put it out. That's it. That's the way it's going out. Keep me searching for a heart of gold. I've been a miner for a heart of gold. That was Neil Young in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 1985, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Dawn James. The Twinkle compilation Girl in a Million is out now on RPM Records. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Are you ready, Boots? Start walking.